Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. If a president undermining our national security and using the federal government for his own selfish personal gain is not impeachable conduct, then, Madam Speaker, I don't know what is. I believe this is the most unfair, politically biased, rigged process that I have seen in my entire life. In less than a few months, the release of a whistleblower complaint about a late July phone call between U.S. President Donald Trump and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has culminated in the articles of impeachment against Trump. A deeply divided moment playing out in American history as we come on the air. President Trump has just been impeached on both Article 1, abuse of power, and on Article 2, obstruction of Congress. The votes down party lines as predicted. The White House has dismissed these allegations as a yeah, hoax. hoax. The whole impeachment thing is a hoax. And the subsequent inquiry as a witch hunt, claiming that both are part of a disinformation campaign. This lawless partisan impeachment is a political suicide march for the Democrat Party. Have you seen my polls in the last four weeks? For their part, the House Democrats who have pressed the impeachment charges say that it is actually Trump who is manipulating the American people. You're talking about the witch hunt? Is that what you mean? I hear it's a joke. Disinformation is the weaponization of information, and it's hardly new. While media manipulation, front groups, stage events, and other deceptive tactics certainly have been part of the U.S. national security and foreign policy arsenal, few states have practiced them as widely and skillfully as the Soviet Union in the 20th century. That tradition lives on in today's Russia, where President Vladimir Putin, a KGB veteran, has built an impressive apparatus for disinforming foreign and domestic public opinion. For years, the Kremlin and the media it controls have waged a multifaceted information and disinformation campaign, both inside Russia and pointed at its perceived adversaries. Our next guest has spent years studying Putin's tactics, and more recently, comparing them to Trump's. Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School and a monthly contributor to Project Syndicate. Nina, we've witnessed an impeachment of a U.S. sitting president, and much of that had to do with Donald Trump reaching out to Ukraine's president, Zelensky, to essentially help him smear Joe Biden. What's the view from Moscow? Is Vladimir Putin benefiting from Trump's domestic troubles? Putin very openly came out and said, well, he's so happy that he's no longer the center of uh, American political drama, and now it's Ukraine that is in the center of political drama, uh, which was an interesting comment because, of course, even if Ukraine is in the center of political drama, ultimately, as Nancy Pelosi memorably recently said, all roads lead to Putin. As for the Russians, they relish this kind of uh, American drama because basically what America has been showing, and particularly in the last three, four years, is that it is capable of going into a tailspin. And Putin is a former KGB man whose job was to recruit people and to kind of undermine their arguments 
watching it and thinking, wow, I don't even need to do any work. You're basically doing it all for me. And it's really not a far-fetched argument because America is in a tailspin and Russia is there to provide a cannon fodder to sort of deflate blame from uh, imperfections of American democracy. And of course, that plays into Putin's hands because he then can say America is out to get Russia. America is always unfair to Russia. It always blames Russia for everything. Where I take kind of a different side from the American perspective on this or American narrative on this is that Trump is parroting Putin's message or uh, Putin is parroting Trump's message. I don't think they are parroting each other's message. It's just the political environment in Russia and the United States and in the United States about Russia is such that their messages seem to go in the same direction. There's also another narrative in Russia that certainly Putin portrays as being anti-Russian, and that is from Kiev and from the Ukrainians. Ukraine's nearly six-year-old war with Russia has reached a stalemate. In June, the president decided to put nearly $400 million in U.S. support for Ukraine, put it on hold. I think it's very hard for Ukraine to win the war without U.S. support, but I also think it's really hard for Ukraine to win the peace without U.S. support. And that is what President Zelensky is trying to do right now. But in order to do that, he needs to have leverage at the negotiating table, and he needs to have strong allies, and he needs to have, uh, in his mind, the U.S. really fighting his corner. We saw that the impeachment inquiry didn't really focus much attention on Zelensky and Ukraine itself. I'd love to hear what that side of the story and what that perspective from Kiev is. And just how vulnerable was Zelensky to Trump's pressure? Well, I was just in Kiev, so it's a very important question. And and when you're in Kiev, you hear, I mean, you see that the country is at war. When you're in Russia, there is a war in Donbass and, you know, Russia backs the separatists and Crimea is ours and all these other narratives that you have. But it's really not a country at war. It's sort of the war is somewhere else. In Ukraine, you see it's the country in war. It's a country at war with Russia. Zelensky really has impressed me tremendously in, in the six months he has been, uh, he's been in power. And so far, he hasn't made some tremendous mistakes, including in his conversation with Trump. Yes, he does look a little bit ass-kissing. But at the same time, it was interesting. He didn't look well in Ukraine, I was told, at the beginning. But then very quickly, the public opinion changed and sort of it was understood he was talking to a, a vain president of the United States. It was interesting how quickly that understanding set in. So he was no longer a weak president, but he was a president who was trying to manipulate complicated foreign affairs. Vladimir Putin and Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, held their first one-on-one -on -one meeting. Both sides are agreeing to pursue a ceasefire in a war that's killed 14,000 people. Putin and Zelensky said the meetings were positive, and they agreed on a prisoner swap. Russia backs rebel forces that control eastern Ukraine. Nina, I want to turn over to the topic of disinformation, which you write about, you, you teach about that quite extensively. And when you take a look at some of the theories about Ukraine that Donald Trump and his supporters have advanced over the last couple of months, they really seem entirely divorced from reality. The FBI went in and they told him, get out of here. You're not kidding. We're not giving it to you. They gave the server 
to CrowdStrike or whatever it's called, which is a country, which is a company owned by a very wealthy Ukrainian. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? Well, Are you sure they did that? Are you sure they gave it to Ukraine? Well, that's what the word is. Senator Kennedy, who do you believe was responsible for hacking the DNC and Clinton campaign computers, their emails? Was it Russia or Ukraine? I don't know, nor do you, nor do any of us. Uh, Ms. Hill. Uh, well, I mean, let me just, let me just interrupt opinion. to say the entire intelligence community says it was Russia. Can you walk us through them and explain what purpose they served? So Donald Trump has been dismissed as a legitimate president by the Democratic Party and many analysts because, well, he's not qualified. Let's just be let's be realistic about it. In defense of him, I get it. He does need to present a unified front uh, with the Republican Party to say he's perfectly legitimate. Nobody elected him. He was as popular as, as any president in, in ever history was. And of course, we also know, and that's not a disinformation, is that Petro Poroshenko would probably support Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden was there every day of Poroshenko's presidency, you know, trying to kind of strengthen Ukraine. So it is in kind of Trump universe of exaggerated statements. If he is for Putin and Putin is for Trump, then Ukraine is for Hillary Clinton and and they must have helped. And so I think that's how it works out that in an environment where each side interprets facts the way they want to interpret, then each side goes in parallel directions arguing that their facts are the right facts and the other side is lying. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. So I want to pick up on this point of the post-truth, everybody having their own sets of facts. Shortly after Trump was elected in 2016, you actually wrote a column for Project Syndicate that referenced A Brave New World, in which citizens distracted by, quote unquote, a lust for constant entertainment become completely blind to injustice and they lose the will to resist. And so now as we're moving towards the 2020 presidential election here in the United States, will Americans continue to be distracted? Well, I think so. I think they are distracted. So when you have on a screen Donald Trump with his golden toilet and his golden staircase and saying, I'm going to make you all rich and we're going to be the greatest and basically doing that survival in the White House on one part of your screen. Another part of your screen is Hillary Clinton is giving a lecture on something, something that you really want to tune out because it's just too complicated. Whom are you going to elect? You're going to elect your reality TV president because he's the apprentice and you want that apprentice in your life. You know, one of the things that the House Intelligence Committee uh, decided to push the impeachment and impeachment publicly is that they were thinking that this, remember when Bill Clinton impeachment was going on, it was the greatest show on earth at the time when O.J. Simpson was doing the race, the whatever, it's a reality TV in its best. But that's what I find kind of interesting. On one hand, they 
say it's and it's true it is a very important process for the United States to make sure that democracy is not being undermined and at the same time almost openly they say well we just really wanted to do it entertainment TV so the American public would be on board on that so you just basically just admitted that American public is an idiot so they're not really interested in the democracy because they're protecting democracy, but they are, will be interested in it because they're going to watch a TV show. Congratulations. Every nation has the government it deserves. So that's my fear. And what turned out to be that everybody was so tired of that reality TV show that actually did almost didn't move Trump numbers, uh, either against him or for impeachment. So we'll see what happens there. But, you know, Russians really have nothing to do with this. I mean, that's on American public. That's on American politics. The sooner they really start addressing issues of their own entertainment, brave new worldy, you know, let's buy that product versus another product, uh, the better they're going to be better off. You know, Putin is a very problematic leader. But that whole Cold Warish explanation that all roads lead to the whole of Russia that is going to take it down. You know, I'm going to cite Putin right now, who said, what kind of democracy you have, it's so easy, <laughs> it's so easy collapsible. You mentioned the Cold War, and we're sitting here today 30 years after the West essentially claimed victory. And You know, we all know Francis Fukuyama, he famously proclaimed the end of history, um, that there is no alternative to liberal democracy. You know, it used to be that there were many alternative forms of government, monarchies and uh, fascist dictatorships. And, uh, you know, uh, for many years we thought communism was our, you know, major rival and alternative, you know, type of civilization. And one by one in this century, every one of those has collapsed. Uh, And, you know, not every country is a liberal democracy. There are many dictatorships of the right and the left remaining. But, you know, as a systematic idea that has some dynamism and some real vitality, liberal democracy is really all there is now. And yet here we are today with strongmen throughout the world, not just in, in Russia and the United States, but Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey, certainly Orban in In Hungary. Hungary. And they're using any means to gain power, whether it's disinformation or propaganda. What happened? I I mean, I continue to believe that there is no alternative to liberal democracy. I do think that. The problem is that when democracy was chest beating, it was also doing things that democracy should not be doing. So you don't start a war in Iraq because you don't like Saddam Hussein. You don't send, I mean, you know, American um, American businesses went into Russia post-Soviet and stole the state and everything else. So you don't do that. You don't advise on privatization. So you enrich your own advisors. So it's, it's the problem of sort of the victor takes all approach of liberal democracy that broke the back of that son of a bitch, that, as Richard Nixon would say. That is damages liberal democracy more than anything else. Because if it does behave well, this other non-responsible or non-moral or authoritarian governments wouldn't have an argument back. But now they have a lot of arguments back. I mean, one of the strengths of Putin is that he basically doesn't let the West to get away with anything. 
if the West is hypocritical, he's going to point out every moment of hypocrisy about it. And that really drives the West crazy. How dare his horrible authoritarian leader telling us how to behave. But the problem with the non-authoritarian leaders, they do really have to have very high ethics that they preach everywhere else. George Kennan, one of the great men who began and essentially the Cold War, since we talk about the Cold War, wrote the wonderful assessment of the sources of Soviet conduct. In 1995, wrote another wonderful assessment article in Foreign Affairs called On American Principles, where he does make that argument that, you know, America is not imperialistic. America is not the country that needs to go to wars to save humanity, just needs to stand by its own principles. And we're seeing it less and less. And I think that damages liberal democracy more than anything. And once again, as I keep saying, every nation has the government it deserves. So you mentioned that Putin points out Western hypocrisy. And certainly creating chaos in the liberal world order is definitely one of his goals. What kind of a world does Putin want to live in then? I'm not sure that that's one of his goals. I don't think it's his goal to create a chaos in the world order. He's just his goal or what he's doing is he pointing out, you know, that's the chaos. I would really not blame Putin for that because he he was absolutely ready to live with the world. I mean, in the early 2000s, he gave interviews of how he's not afraid of NATO, Russia is part of Europe. I think it's useful to remind them that in the first year of his presidency in 2000, he went to to see Tony Blair to London three times. He didn't go to China the way usually the Soviet leaders would go. He was going to England, the furthest from uh, Russian sort of cultural understanding, and they were getting along. So he was he was ready to, to be that. I mean, I'm not... I think Putin turned into a horrible leader for, for Russia. He has a lot to answer for. But so is people who were thinking that, you know, now when Russia is no longer communist or America or whatever, the West won the Cold War, Russia is going to follow whatever the road the West is going to prescribe. I mean, somebody should have told those people who were advising um, the White House, well, first under Bush and then under Barack Obama, and that Russia is not a following country. It's, I mean, it's a country of 11 time zones. You really just think about this. It's not a country that it would follow. So once again, evoking George Kennan, the sources of Soviet conduct. Figure out what it is that they do and will do and look at them the way they would do it and sort of assess your, create your foreign policy in relations to their cultural, political, psychological understanding of the world rather than saying, no, we feel it's going to be like that. So I think these things, I mean, really they need new George Kennan. You know, you've talked a lot about the post-truth world. Have we been here before? How do we actually get out of it? I don't think we've been in post-truth world before. When we talked about the brave new world, I think they were indications of potential disease. And I think that disease, unfortunately, uh, is now full-blown. Culture never lies about politics. It picks up whatever the possible instances they are and then turn them into a work of art. And we don't even know what happened, but it's already there. So I think we all should become more educated, uh, resist the urge to push a button and get all your information immediately, actually make an effort to do that because the muscle, the way 
Brave New World is really structured as a book, the muscles of learning, the muscles of thinking, the muscles of understanding, the muscles of analyzing, uh, the muscles of criticizing uh, atrophied. I mean, if you're not using them, they're just really not there. You're watching that reality TV Trump. And so I think that's the solution. Whether it is a viable solution, I'm not that sure, because nobody ever goes from easy to hard. It's just human nature. Nina, we normally end each episode by asking our guests this question, what gives you hope? But I want to be more specific this time. This spring, following Zelensky's rise to power in Ukraine, you said that his election was another instance of characters, not leaders, defining politics. Which leaders give you hope? Well, I was wrong. I mean, I I think I judged Zelensky by his TV show, which was entertaining, but really didn't show him as an actual leader, sort of kind of reality TV or fictional TV leader. I think so far he has been, he does give me hope. I mean, so far he has been good. I, I don't know how it's going to, I mean, he's in a very difficult situation, I think. But so far he has been not disappointing. I mean, I wouldn't say I have high hopes, but he was not disappointing. So that's a good sign for me. I think What's happening in Hong Kong gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I think it's a horrible situation and you know, people are using it for their own advantage and making it more violent than it should. But it does suggest that, you know, once again, kind of uh, shout out for liberal democracy, that people want democracy. People actually want to live in a society that is free. The great Greta she just got the time of the year, I mean, the, the, the person of the year, year time right. of award. And that's that's an amazing thing. She really started a movement. Good for Greta and good for the world. These are the leaders that should give us all hope. Thank you. Thank you. How do yeah. we get, get out That was Nina Khrushcheva. She is a professor at the Julian J. Studley Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a regular contributor to Project Syndicate. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.